Okay, let me share my screen. Right. Okay, so welcome to the meeting number 150. We'll start with the C++ podcast news. C++ cast is on indefinite hiatus. It's a sad day for C++ podcast listeners. Rob Irving, the creator of CPPcast, which was the first podcast for C++ developers, decided to hit pause for an indefinite amount of time. His new job is .NET, which means he's not using C++ and he can't justify spending time on it anymore because it's quite time-consuming. And it's completely understandable. Everything, everyone is grateful. Reddit is full of praise. Uh, one quote is, Great podcast. I'm a bit sad they're invoking the CPP cast destructor. I'll always remember this as my favorite programming podcast. End quote. CPP cast had a good run with Rob and his co-host Jason Turner producing an impressive total of 349 episodes over the years. All high-quality content with many interesting guests. I mentioned CPPcast a few times in our meetings, and I still have a long backlog to listen to. <laughs> so it's likely that I will continue mentioning it for some time. All the best to Rob and Jason in anything that comes next. Godbolt Compiler Explorer is 10 years old. Can you believe it? 10 years ago, Matt Godbolt open-sourced a web tool he built, Compiler Explorer, which used to be called GCC Explorer. It turned into an indispensable tool for visualizing the work of compilers and code sharing. Most people probably just call it Godbolt now. I do. <laughs> Not only can you use it on its original website, you can also self-host it in case you have additional security requirements or cannot share proprietary code online. A quote from his article. Ten years ago, I got permission to open source a little tool called GCC Explorer. I developed it over a week or so of spare time at my then-employer in Node.js, and the rest, as they say, is history. And this is how it looked back then much simpler and much less capable than it is now. In his article, Matt mentions people who supported him and developed Compiler Explorer together and shared some ideas for the future, like supporting more CPUs and architectures, user accounts, better support for GPUs, and actual support for mobile devices. Right. Uh, speaking of online tools, there is another one called QuickBench. It's a C++ micro-benchmarking tool that allows you to compare performance of several code snippets using Google Benchmark. 
It draws nice charts, as you can see, and can also pass your code onto one of the publicly available C++ compilers, including Godbolt and C++ Insights. And speaking of C++ Insights, it's a tool by Andreas Fertig that shows you an intermediate result of compilation of a snippet of code so that you can see what actually happens in the compiler. The result is still C++. It's underrated. It's always interesting to see what a compiler actually does, but not many people actually use this. Definitely. It's like a, a glimpse into the soul of the compiler, at least the initial stages. Some of the things you don't want to see, but you better see. <laughs> yeah. um, the code is, is transformed to illustrate how the compiler sees your code. Right. Next, C++ um, standard, standard Hive update. Uh, the long-awaited uh, proposal, which had 19 revisions by now, was discussed again in the committee telecon. And you will not believe what the next steps are. And the next steps are Come back with revised paper addressing feedback. How many more revisions will it take, I wonder? Um, it took, I think, 26 more concepts. Oh, right. So that's not the longest. I, I know that. No, 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 no. That was um, contracts. And then it died. Right. Well, it's sort of going slowly, so could be could beat this record. So uh, this redditor asks, do C plus plus twenty concepts change compile time positively or not? On one hand, a C plus plus concept adds more stuff to digest for the compiler. On another hand, it imposes constraints, hence reducing sphene stages. Do you have some feedback about this? And one of the replies says, very positively, they nearly eliminate the need for Sphine. And the code is much cleaner. Instead of weird template parameters, you have clean requirements listed. Jonathan Wakeley uh, replies, um, he's a GCC developer working at Red Hat. He says that GCC has made a significant progress in concepts compilation efficiency lately. He also notes that concepts can be used for member function selection from the overload set and are better at it than Sphine. Quote, concepts allow the constraints to be expressed in a simple form that takes less work to compile and that can be optimized internally by the compiler more easily than Sphine hacks. Additionally, subsumption and partial ordering of constraints means that you don't need to repeat the constraints on every overload. For example, if the enable if constraint above in this code snippet, um, I think he means this one, uh, if in the enable if was used on one member of the, an overload set, 
you'd also need to negate that constraint on the other members, which you don't need for concepts. Yep, very nice and expected and predicted. And uh, it's very nice that somebody uh, puts this information out publicly. Well, yes. It simplifies a lot of code. C++ 20 features are becoming more available to people who are switching to newer compilers. And so more and more articles of that sort are starting to appear. Tristan Brindle raises this interesting point. Quote, just to add to this, another benefit of concepts is that they can be used in places where Sfine can't, like on destructors and copy move constructors. This is useful for things like stud-optional, whose special members should be trivial whenever the equivalent operation on T is trivial. His example code snippet is a partial declaration of optional class template that has two destructors, one defaulted for when the contained type is trivially destructible with a requires clause after the parenthesis that uses std is trivially destructible, and another user-defined one for when the contained type is not trivially destructible which has a body that calls the contained time destructor. This leads to this leads nicely to the next topic. Rainer Grimm posted an article on his blog. Uh, yeah. About using requires outside concepts. I know it's not the ideal usage. Uh, more of a, an ad hoc uh, usage, but still as a way to get more people to use concepts, I guess that's allowed. <laughs> as you can see here, you can use requires in static assert. Uh, this function returns um, checks that uh, a class has a way to return the count of objects and is that count is convertible to int. You can also re use requires in context brief. This is a function that uh, can return the number of elements in a container or a custom class, and one of those classes can use function that differs in name from another one, like count and size. And uh, if you use requires in if constexpr, you can uh, support both in one function. It seems to be a very good use of uh, requires. I've used this uh, myself, and um, you can use it in const-evaluated uh, contexts as well. And you know, it does save a lot of template instantiations uh, and complications in the code. It looks very good to me. Yeah. In many cases, it's a bit of a hack because it doesn't document what you really are doing, just says how you're doing it. In other words, if, if, that, if, you, if you are doing something principled, the likelihood is that it actually should be a concept and have a name. Uh, definitely, yes. You know, just not the requires, but the concept in the if statement. Exactly. I, I certainly use... Uh, uh, concepts for for that both in static assert and in context, but but I am 
I'm leery of code, even if I write it, that uh, uses requires all over the place because it's it, it's it's like um, putting the contents of a function inside something, and you don't really know what's meant. You know what's done. Yeah, maybe in this case it could be viewed as a as a first step towards extracting these into a concept. Yes, I, that's one way. I, I've certainly done exactly that. I wrote something. Oh God, this is a heck. Uh, this should have a name. Uh, I might be able to use it elsewhere. And I mean, a concept is a is a function. Uh, as you see here. Another interesting use case is to put a constraint on a non-type template parameter. Uh, let's see if I can find that example. Oh yeah, this. Um, if you have a uh, say an int non-type template parameter, you can add a requires clause to limit uh, values to a particular range. Rainer also describes the requires requires uh, thing or anonymous concepts. This requires requires, if you remember, attracted attention and undeserved ridicule of concepts skeptics back when they were introduced. I know I remember at least one presentation when this was laughed at. Rainer says, you can define an anonymous concept and directly use it. In general, you should not do it. Anonymous concepts make your code hard to read and you cannot reuse them. Um, so the first requires in this is the requires clause and the second defines a requires expression. And as usual, you shouldn't try too hard to make ugly things pretty. And this stuff is very often ugly. Yeah. So a very interesting article, and I hope to get more into concepts as I gain more experience using C20. Next, we have this article by Mahit Saini. Shocking examples of undefined behavior. They are not that shocking if you already know about UB, but if, it, if it's your first encounter, boy, are you in for a surprise. <laughs> the first example of UB by Eric Musa originally is signed into JaraOverflow combined with Optimizer. And there is a Godbolt link for that. Uh, Initially, it wasn't supposed to be an endless loop, but as you can see here, it's not endless loop when it compile, it's compiled without optimizations, but as soon as you try to optimize it, it turns into an infinite loop. How, how does that happen? It's very weird. So the initial code is a, a loop that loops uh, from 0 to 9. 
and there is a an output statement that outputs a result of multiplication of the loop variable to a very large integer. So what the compiler does in its first step of optimization is a bit unintuitive, but you stare at it long enough, it kind of starts making sense. The compiler is um, sort of hoists the calculation one level up to the loop condition and increment. And so in the cout statement is just the loop variable. Now the compiler assumes that signed integer overflow never happens in a valid program because it's UB. And so the next step, the compiler reduces that multiplication to true. Because Did, didn't the compiler just introduce UB? Um, well, the loop would have resulted in UB anyway. I think that's the idea of um, the original. I, I author. see. So, so the 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 J times that uh, yeah large constants is UB, and the compiler is allowed to do anything. Yeah. So after that, the compiler thinks, oh, so the right hand of this comparison is larger than int max, which cannot happen. So let's just turn it the, the whole condition to true. And so the loop becomes infinite. <laughs> Very weird. The second example I've seen before, it was originally shared by Krista Wolfritson. And it's about dereferencing a null pointer. Let's look at it in detail. Let me try and show you the Godbolt for it. Um, so, what happens here? The function never called is never called explicitly in this code snippet. Nevertheless, as the result of uh, the compilation, the function erase all is called, which is surprising and potentially disastrous. If this wasn't commented out, you probably end up losing your file system. Well, provided you're uh, the pseudo user. So what, uh, let's see what the compiler sees in this. Look at the function do that is defined, uh, declared here. It's static, so that means it can only be modified by this translation unit and nothing else. In this translation unit, the only possible values for do are null putter and erase all. That's what the compiler sees. Since do gets called in main, it cannot be null putter, as it would be UB, and we can't have that in a well-formed program. Well, that means that do can be only initialized with erase all. And as a nice side effect, let's just turn never called into a no-op. And so it happens that main just calls erase all. Boom. <laughs> ah, compilers.
a Redditor suggests a solution for the first case, uh, well, kind of solution or mitigation, I'd say. Um, there is a flag that you can use uh, in GCC and Clang, which is f wrap v, and that makes signed integer inter, integer overflow defined by telling the compiler to assume that signed integers wrap using two complement two's complement arithmetic on overflow. Um, another editor attempted to suggest using unsigned integers with defined overflow semantics to which there was a reply. The problem is they have very unhelpful behavior a lot of the time and are widely considered a mistake in like the standard library. Glad we got that solved and we'll never need to revisit it again ever. <laughs> As ever, there is someone telling us that Rust does it better. And I like a quote in the thread, which goes like this. The UB comes first, the unexpected results follow. Right. Library. Uh, a Ukrainian developer living in Kyiv, Daniel Goncharov, developed a utility library named Nameof for obtaining a string representation of pretty much any C++ object at, at compile time, be it a variable, a member variable, a type, or even a macro. It's a single header file with lots of magic, and it can be a great help for logging and debugging. The library comes under MIT license, supports Windows, Linux, and macOS, and can be installed using VC package or just by incorporating the header in your project. Much of the functionality uses a compiler-specific hack based on the macros pretty function and functsig, which work on Clang, MSVC, and GCC. There is also discussion on Reddit. And while browsing Daniel's code, consider supporting Ukraine in the fight against Russian invaders. Xmake 266 has been released. Xmake is a very capable cross-platform build utility and package manager based on Lua. Strong pre-make vibes here, <laughs> but it's much better. It supports other package managers like Conan and VC package out of the box. It also supports modern C++ features like modules. From what I can gather, it supports them better than other build systems. It can generate project files for Visual Studio, CMake, and Xcode. It comes with sensible defaults and is generally very pleasant to use. In news, new in, in this version is support for NVIDIA HPC SDK compilers for C, C++, and Fortran, and support for distributed compilation, which is cross-platform, works with MSVC, Clang, and GCC, builds Android, iOS, Linux, Windows, and macOS programs, has no dependencies other than the compilation toolchain, supports load balancing and scheduling, 
supports real-time large file compression transfer using LZ4 algorithm and has almost zero configuration cost. There's no shared file system required. Which sounds pretty cool. GiveX make a go for your next pet project. I did, and so far I'm pretty happy. You're not looking back to CMake? Oh no, God no. Not for my pet projects. <laughs> Life's too short. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, C++ interview questions. A Redditor asks, what are some C++-related questions that you have been asked in a job interview? Um, there are various questions uh, of various uh, difficulty levels from beginner to advanced. And I will quote a sampling of replies from the thread. What is polymorphism? Make a polymorphic container. What are smart pointers? Prove you can use them. Explain virtual tables. How do you allocate memory in C++? How does it differ from C? Well, for a C++ role, I'd say that difference from C is maybe not critically important, but still useful. How do you allocate... Oh, sorry. In Java, they got try, catch, and finally, the latter performs some code, no matter when, whether an exception was thrown or not. We've got no finally in C++. How do we achieve the same effect nonetheless? For this one, RIII is the best answer. And you can also use uh, some utilities like GSL uh, finally, I think. Exactly. I mean, it's 10 lines of code, guys. Yeah. It's still based on RIII, but um, yeah. if your classes are not don't support that directly, then you can use that. Any hope that we're going to ever get finally standardized? Um, sort of. This is a standards committee, so it becomes much more complicated. It's not just final. It's like finally, but you can say that it's only be called when it's an exception or only be called when it isn't an exception, and you can turn it on and off. This is supposedly an improvement. I like the simple final. I also like the simple one. I don't know what was wrong with that. Uh, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't do everything that somebody could imagine. It doesn't do perfection. Right. It, of that course, it also means that you, you can see one of those and you don't really know what's going on because in the code, after you set the uh, final action, somebody might turn it off. Yeah, that's not uh, ideal when you're relying on it. I, I strongly prefer the simple because can't do interesting. Yeah. I think Boost it's, it's also like, has... It's like my argument against GoTo. can do everything. That's why we don't want it. Yeah. I think Boost also has one if you don't have access to GSL, uh, like for an older code. I think GSL requires C++ 14 now. Microsoft's GSL. Another 
question or rather quote I had my last C++ interview three years ago and the references weren't mentioned at all then again I'm in the game industry which is notoriously resistant to modern C++ I wouldn't say references were modern C++ is like C++ <laughs> but yeah game industry 1983 <laughs> I think in in uh, when in dooms um, and subsequent engines the references were banned I think uh, I don't know until when though um, but probably until recently they were still sticking to pointers only so it was uh, C with classes kind of thing it wasn't and references were already um, kind of forbidden uh, luxury. Yeah, there's a whole um, repository of guidelines called Orthodox C++. <laughs> it's like anti-modern C++, but it's a very hard reading. Um, another one, another question. You need to push one million elements to the container using pushback method. Which container will you choose? Stud vector or stud list and why? And the following follow-up question was how many memory allocations will happen if you use pushback in the vector to push one million elements? And the answer is the number of allocations depends on implementation, but will often be uh, log two of the uh, one million elements because uh, by default, most often vector allocates uh, twice the, cap the capacity each time it runs out of space. Of course, a better solution is pre-allocate. Um, another one, what's the difference between make shared and shared pointer constructor? And that's related to the control block, which is allocated in one block and two blocks in the, uh, if you don't use make shared. This is the kind of question that people ask when they just found out about this. And they think, ah, oh, this is something that is a good thing to know. And I want to ask. Yeah. I know about it. Let's see. My, my experience is that students coming out of university doesn't know on average. That's not the kind of stuff they're told, they're told. You can argue that many questions in interviews are just details and they are not essential, but just a way to demonstrate the interviewer's uh, proficiency and superiority. And we'll show off, yes. Yeah, sure. A bit of a dusty corner here and there and that you found out, you know, and you remember. Yeah. Uh, some other questions were, what's the difference between a struct and a union? What is virtual inheritance? What is a union used for? Rule of five, rule of three, RAII, what do they mean? What's the difference between a reference and a pointer? What does the keyword volatile mean? What are the different types of cast operations? What does the inline keyword do? Explain slicing. Explain how Sphene works in pre-C++20. Explain what a cross-thread data race is. And uh, if a class has a destructor, it should probably also have a blank and a blank. And maybe another two blanks. What are they? And that's the rule of five. Which is 
one of the more useful questions I've seen. There were a couple of code snippets in the thread. Let me find them. The first one was, what's wrong with the following class declaration? Uh, oh yeah, this one. This class string, what's wrong with it? And um, the answer was that since the class mem member variables are initialized in declaration order, uh, st string star will be initialized before uh, length is initialized. And since length is in uninitialized, it contains garbage, and accessing it is UB. Even if you flip that around, the code is pretty bad anyway. Well, it's like a yeah, that one like a one issue demo code. Like, don't pay attention to anything else. But I guess if uh, the person starts telling you what else is wrong with the code, it's a good sign. My question is, how many compilers catch that one? Um, the out-of-order initialization, I think, uh, with the all the warnings on, probably many. I think GCC and Clang will catch it without uh, any, uh, with the all, um, all? W extra w, uh, w all? No, hang on. Yeah, I'm not sure. W x something? Yeah. One of those. They will catch it. But uh, I don't think uh, MSVC will. And if you have ReSharper installed, it will sort of suggest that it's a problem. So this is another code snippet. What will the following program output and why? And the correct answer here, I think, is a foo, because calling virtual functions from a constructor makes them behave like non-virtual functions, and is generally not a good idea to avoid confusion. I remember reading a C++ hiring advice some time ago. Ask the candidate a complex template metaprogramming question, and if they answer correctly, don't hire them. <laughs> Good one. Uh, Redditor asks, is Boost still relevant? Is learning Boost still essential with C++20? And uh, one of the answers that I thought was sensible was like this. It's actually the first one. Quote, I'm not sure learning boost is the right term. Maybe understanding that it exists and take advantage of it if necessary. When I tell my new developers, the, what I tell my new developers is that if you need a container or, or algorithm or something that is generic and not specific to our business, is to first check the STL and core C++ libraries, then boost, and if it is not there, look for another open source solution. If you can't find, if you can't find something that fits what we need, code it yourself or modify one of the existing implementations if that would make more sense. Boost incubates a lot of code before it goes into the C++ standard, so often has things you can't find in C++ 20. End quote. 
Some of the boost libraries that could be still useful and were named in the thread were variant2, a variant which always has a value, ASIO, also available as a non-boost library, BEAST, which is networking and WebSockets built on top of Boost, ASIO, MP11 and HANA for metaprogramming, MP11, I think, only if you don't mind long compile times, Describe for reflection, a JSON parser, a multi-precision uh, library, and regex, which is much faster than std regex. To an extent, also the um, small library to interpret uh, the command line parameters. What's it called? Oh yeah, I think it's like boost command line or something like that. Or oh, boost parameters. I don't remember, but yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. Just a weird syntax to be honest. Yeah. Uh, I think it also has a nice feature where you can define um, parameters using environment variables, which not all command line interpreter libraries do. There was another great answer from this thread, quote, there is no single thing from Boost that I have a need for in every project, but I nearly always use something. And that poster listed something they used, which was Boost algorithm for various string-related algorithms like trim, split, and etc. But some of these are obsolete with the addition of ranges. Specialized containers like flat maps, static vector, and stable vector. Boost lexical cast, because parsing arbitrary numeric types in C++ is still absurdly difficult. Boost process, boost format, although from now on uh, they will only be using FMT or std format. And boost hash. They continue. Hey, has, has boost gotten a solution to the problem that you get all of boost if you want anything? Mm, I think that's still true. Uh, the libraries are like those libraries that are not header only and produce libraries, they are separate, so you, you don't necessarily link to everything you, you need. But boost is being imported as one thing. So yeah. boost and, version. And so, and so the problem is you bring boost into a project to get something specific, and then you wait a year, and then all kinds of uh, strange features has been uh, used. And you can't see it unless you look very careful. Yes. I, yes, there, there is a danger of boost creep. <laughs> oh yes, but um, yeah, I don't know how to fight that code reviews probably. Okay, so next one is pure virtual C plus plus recordings are available. Cybrand writes. Pure Virtual C++, a free one-day virtual conference for the whole C++ community, run in April, and all sessions are now available to watch online. The titles sound quite interesting. There were pre-conference sessions on MSVC C++ 2023 update, 
by Stefan T. Lavawade. Live session What's New in C23 by Cybrand. A session by Gabriel Dosrace Persistent Representation of C for Fun and Profit. I'm guessing it's related to modules. Uh, no, not really. That's a representation, that's a development of the IP, IPR, which is, I think, called IFC when it's in uh, um, Microsoft. And it's uh, a really uh, interesting way of uh, having your program represented as a graph and then walking over it. And what is new is you can store this one and uh, bring it back again. There was a CVPCon uh, 2021 uh, talk by Gabby about that also. Um, it's it's uh, being open sourced, so use it. But it's basically the old idea of representing a C++ program as a graph. So, uh, and it's one of the fastest graphs you can traverse. So the fact that it's used in modules is just a, a small, um, one small part of its usefulness, I guess. Yes, um, the design, the original design of, of modules, were based on the ideas of how you could represent and use a program. Uh, based on IPR. The fact that Gabby was deeply involved in uh, the IPR and, uh, has been the main uh, person in the development of it into the modern version, and that he was the one that did a lot of the modules, is no accident at all. Right. Some of the other sessions were. Stay calm and stress-free by using a package manager, an overview of VC package, targeting macOS from Visual Studio, dependent breakpoints, data breakpoints in Visual Studio code, hot reload for C++, client tidy in Visual Studio code, productivity in Visual Studio, cute C++ tricks. Uh, so, yeah, uh, a good set of videos that uh, I'll have to watch at some point. I watched two of the short ones, the Clang Tide in, in Visual Studio Code. Uh, it was really nice. It's just like 10 minutes. It just tells you how to set it up and a quick demo. Nice. Very cool. And I think one of the two ones are about breakpoints. And if I recall correctly, it was about uh, possibly uh, encoding a breakpoint, um, just writing some sort of attributes, uh, which I understand, if I understand correctly, is a feature that is also been, dis been discussed for standardization, although somewhat uh, controversial for technical reasons. That you just can say in the code, here is a breakpoint, and uh, um, instead of just uh, clicking on the line, you can just write break here. And if it's running the bug under the bugger, then it's going to break. I think that feature is already available in compilers using compiler-specific um, functions like debug breakpoint uh, that breaks hard. I know that for sure in MSVC there is uh, some compiler-specific one, and 
But if I recall correctly, there is a limit to how many you can use. Like there is a limit of how many you can put, maybe. I think the limit applies to the data breakpoints because they use specific CPU registers, so they can only be like four maximum at the same time. That would make sense, yes. But breakpoints can be scattered all over the place. I think the proposal was to introduce std breakpoint and std is debugger present two functions. Maybe the third one, break if under debugger or something like that. So maybe we'll get them in 26. Who knows? I don't know. It's definitely interesting. I don't know if I would use it, but um, it sounds like uh, something that could be there. I don't know. I, I think the main problem is that then you have to admit that a debugger existed. And of course it does, but now you have to say what it is in some sense. And it's very hard to say uh, this, this is a breakpoint for the debugger, and the debugger is something that is not part of the standard. Oh, right, I, I see. So uh, somebody's going to say, what does that mean? I guess it's a similar problem with standardizing uh, Pragma once, which suddenly introduces a concept of file system into the standard. And and, and the fact that uh, once doesn't actually mean once if there's a change in, in the um, in the file system, or if something appears in un uncoordinated ways. Uh, Pragma once is extremely useful unless you do something with. <clears throat> If you have some links, probably that uh, um, maybe you, you, you have some soft links to your files somewhere else, then maybe Pragma once could get confused or something. Oh, like that. There, there, there's two or three ways that uh, you can confuse Pragma once. And uh, well, go, go and get uh, modules to work and uh, have that problem anymore. Yes, please. Yeah. Okay, next we have another library which is called libassert. We've all used assertions with uh, some degree of success. And in many cases, we want to be able to do that at runtime as well as uh, debugging, during debugging, so in release builds as well. So Jeremy Rifkin wrote a super advanced assertion library. In his own words, it's the most over-engineered and overpowered C++ assertion library. When an assertion fails, not only you get a message, a stack trace, and local variable values, but these are all syntax highlighted. Can you imagine that? This is how a failed assertion looks. <laughs> I'd say that's pretty advanced. I've never seen anything like it. Can we see the the assembly that these things uh, generates? Uh, no, it's probably too horrible. <laughs> Does it spell check the messages while it's added? <laughs> now that would be too much. <laughs> uh, supported constructs are debug assert, which is similar to assert. Uh, simple assert, which is checked in debug, but still evaluated and returned in release. Um, 
assume, which checks core assumptions, preconditions, and postconditions in debug and provides hints to the optimizing release. Sort of similar to concepts, maybe. In contracts? Uh, contracts, sorry, yes, of course. And uh, verify, which checks the condition in both debug and release. GSL also has similar uh, uh, macros, right? I don't know. Uh, yeah, but they're not great. We, we need something better. So contracts are definitely not going uh, in 23, but are they going in 26? I don't know. I don't know what they are. Nobody knows at this point. Right, they still seem to be mutating. They haven't been brought to the committee as a whole. My impression is that they serve part of the need that people have. Um, and uh, not all. One problem I have is they seem to be going towards uh, termination as the only possible way of uh, responding to a uh, runtime detection. And that means that there's a fair amount of code you can't use it. So if you imagine using a, a contract in standard library, then you could not have it uh, run except in depot. Because you couldn't take termination in cases. Anyway, it doesn't come up, and it'll come up uh, maybe next year and the year after when something comes out of study group. Right. So uh, that was the last thing for today, and I'll leave you with this tweet that talks fun at JavaScript, as you do. JavaScript be like equals equals, the same, equals equals equals, really the same, four equal signs, really actually the same, five equal signs, you won't even believe how the same those things are. <laughs> and uh, the last thing is a quote by Fred Brooks, who wrote uh, The Mythical Man Month, who says, what one programmer can do in one month, two programmers can do in two months. <laughs> and on that note, thank you very much, everyone, for coming, and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>